with copycat, you know, we've been able to take, you know, the kind of bones of machine learning where it says, I give you, you know, you give it some reference of, I want to turn this image into this image. And then it goes away and trains how to do that and, and can apply that. Um, but it does it, it does it in a kind of artist focused context. There are people out there who are, you know, born to be creatives or born to be designers. It is their passion and, and the thing they're really driven to do. I am not one of them, um, <laughs> to be honest. Quite a, you know, mediocre designer, I would say, but um, really good at, you know, setting direction, organizing a team towards a goal, working towards achieving things together. We're opening up um, the ability to use models that were trained outside of Nuke. So you can use open source PyTorch models that are generated in the community inside Nuke. Really, if you know, you're someone that has knowledge of, of Nuke, Maya, Katana, Mari, anything, you um, have a lot more career options right, than, than working only in a studio. And yeah, definitely whether that's product management or other other things, um, there's a lot a lot of job opportunities out there in the kind of technology space. Hi, I'm Daniel Mark Miller with the VFX Artist Podcast, and this week we're talking to Christiane Zelmo of Foundry. She's Chief Product Officer, so if you use any Foundry products such as Nuke or Mari or Modo, then you're going to get some really interesting insights into how they prioritize the development of those softwares. Um, how they work at Foundry and how you know this stuff that we use every day um, gets made. We're also going to find out about her career. She actually started in fashion design, so there's some really interesting um, surprises there. And we also talk about the possibility for VFX artists who may wish to move on to software development and working with creating the products that create the images. So there's some really cool stuff. We also get to talk about USD and machine learning. So there's some fascinating uh, insights here, and I think it would be really valuable. So sit back, grab a tea or a coffee, and let's get started. Hi. So, uh, hi, Christy. Hey, Daniel. So, how are you doing? Do, doing all right. It's exciting to be talking to you today. It's really yeah. good to have you on the show, actually, finally. Um, so, okay, so for those that don't know, um, you obviously are product manager at, the f at Foundry, not the, it was the Foundry. When I, <laughs> when it <laughs> yes, it is, it was the Foundry, it's now Foundry. Because all the films are going the other way, they're going like Batman, the Batman. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we, we went for it less, um, fewer words and, and more direct than, uh, <laughs> more articles. <laughs> yeah so let's start with that like how did you how did you um get into vfx and how did you become product manager at foundry yeah sure so um let's see so i'm well i'm currently the chief product officer at foundry officially so with this i do like after um product management and product design for all of the products at foundry of course it's a you know pretty large team now of people that know much more about the individual products and things than I do, but I do get to work across all of them. Um, and before this role, which I've only been in since July this year, so it's quite new, 
um, I was the director of product looking after the Nuke family. So I've been at Foundry six and a half years, primarily looking after Nuke, um, but now looking after everything. But um, I think my background is probably a bit unique compared to other people that you've talked to in that I don't come from VFX. Um, Foundry is my first VFX role. Um, and I actually started my career in product design. So I started product management because the company I worked for was full of those super creative fashion designers that really had a great vision for what they wanted to build, but were really struggling with um, understanding how to accomplish <laughs> their, their vision and how to make a successive, successful business from it. So I kind of fell into it then. So they had to get, so I just to try and straighten out what you were actually doing, I'll play some of the windows that are in my way. But um, so just to kind of get an idea, the, the fashion designer, for example, is ordering material um, and things like that, and then they're they're ordering and they're they're, they're assembling the stuff and sending it out and responding to orders. And your your you were just making sure that they, you know, didn't, for example, use. Um, acres of silk that they couldn't afford for the product, the <laughs> price they were selling it at, and that, that they could source all the materials they were sending, and that they could supply the orders that they said they could supply, and that the turnaround times were reasonable again for what they for the what they were selling and the price they were selling. Is that, is that kind of a, an accurate it's description of what you were doing? Most, mostly that. Um, I I think, yeah. Take for granted, people that haven't worked in fashion probably don't realize how much goes into the design process, like how many, um, you know, think how many different colors of t-shirt do we need in our product line this year? You know, long sleeves, short sleeves, crew necks, v-necks, cotton, organic cotton. What do we need to, you know, design so that we can, you know, have what our customers want, we can advance our brand, we can, you know, build our business and, you know, it's usually more creative than just t-shirts <laughs> that you're working on. Um, and actually, my, my kind of day-to-day -day as a designer was closer to CAD design. So I used, um, you know, I was spent most of the day drawing, I think you could just say. And I did a lot of surface design work, so pattern design and um, knitwear design using Adobe Illustrator, using some fashion industry-specific software, like from... Uh, like Electra, Kaleido, or Modaris. People that work in fashion will know those. <laughs> They're like big softwares. Um, and actually at university I learned AutoCAD because somehow my university was way ahead of the curve and thought we needed to learn how to design clothing in 3D. So, um, you know, coming back to my path, I wish someone at, <laughs> at school would have told me about VFX as a career because not a great designer of fashion, but really good at CAD. So I think I missed that uh, kind of path I could have gone. While you were still in fashion, you moved into product management. Is that right? Is that? Yeah, is exactly. That... And then that was more like what you, you said. So um, working on, uh, we used to call it merchandising. So planning, you know, we need to have, you know, we're going to make 20 products in, in our product line. We need to have three black tops and three red tops and two purple tops, that kind of thing. And then working like you said, with the design team and the product design team to make sure that we're not um, being inefficient and in saying, you know, of our three red tops, they're all three different colors of red, <laughs> different materials, because it's more expensive to produce them and 
are we really going to sell them all? That kind of thing. Um, I also learned a lot about supply chains and import-export businesses and, and all of those things. Because um, the company... Yeah. <laughs> I actually worked uh, in an aquascutum, not quite the same oh, world, no, no, but no, no, like yeah. supplying the shops and... It was the kind of customer service, but supplying the shop. So it was. It's funny when you're talking all this stuff. It's like, yeah, I mean, it was you know, twenty years ago or so, yeah. but I do kind of remember some of this stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's it, really. It's a. Uh, it's it's had not changed so much, right? And that's really one of the things that um, took me away from fashion is that, you know, it's. I think now there's like a a bit of a renaissance in design and this three D like move towards three D transformation. And seeing a lot more 3D tools come in to fashion design, which is really exciting for a lot of reasons. Um, but at the time, so this was like mid 2000s, it, it just felt like the innovation wasn't happening. You're doing the same things over and over every season. It just wasn't wasn't that interesting. And yeah, I was going to say that Foundry has a product I've never used because it's not a VFX product, but the, it's a, not fashion design, but it's a product design product that it. it does that have a connection to the way you were thinking about these things? You know, I can't remember what it's called now. But <laughs> yeah, I've seen yes. that they had the advert of designing like an espresso machine, and like the, the demo, and they were changing the colors of the, the tabs. And you know what I mean? You know what I mean. Yeah, yes, absolutely. So we have, Foundry has two products that are used in digital like product design now. And well, one is Modo, right, which is a, a modeling tool, which also used in VFX, but used even more in product design. And for, it's quite good when you're working um, creatively and with organic shapes and that kind of thing. So it's used a lot by accessories designers or packaging designers, that kind of thing. And is that also good because it's good for um, when you're actually manufacturing it rather than rendering it? Is that? Um, not, it's really more f like currently the use case is more on the design side. So when you're quickly testing out ideas and trying out different versions of those ideas, which um, the ability to kind of try a lot, a lot of different versions and, and see them all laid out together is what led to um, creation of Colorway, which is probably the one that you saw, which is a product I wish that I had when I was doing design, especially product management and design, because you know, like in our t-shirt example where you say it's a product line that's going to have 20 items in it, you might go through two or 300 different iterations. Like show me what it looks like with three black ones, with four black ones, with all long sleeves, short sleeves, like show me all the varieties that are possible and let me lay them out like in my catalog or my uh, mocked up store or even just my you know, merchandising plan to see that it all makes sense. It's the right combination that I want. And Colorway makes that really easy because it, you know, it links your models to this kind of two, 2D layout view and lets people that are not um, 3D artists, I should say, like those product managers like me, <laughs> go through and, and tweak materials and colors and versions and build different colorways and see how they all look together to help in that design and design review process. Because I think that's all, I mean, VFX and fashion all have this thing in common that, you know, you've got these creative people that have to then ultimately um show stuff to business people i mean you know and i mean maybe in film you're still dealing with directors and so on but at some point you know it gets shown to execs and, and people that aren't necessarily like artists or, or designers and 
in, in advertising, obviously there's like account managers and people like that who have a very business background. And they can, if they, they, they might decide what they like when they see it, but they can't imagine things. Yeah, definitely. And I think, I mean, one of the things that's been really exciting, again, like in recent years in fashion is the move towards being able to make those, you know, design and purchasing decisions based on the digital representations. So whether that's models or yeah, th things that are rendered out as, as images and colorway, um, you know, that saves a lot of time in the design process and a lot of waste. Like we think, you know, it used to be when I was doing it, right, you needed to make multiple rounds of physical sample garments. People wouldn't place an order without having a physical garment in front of them. And the amount of like shipping back and forth to the Far East, the amount you'd spend on you know, samples that were just going to be most likely thrown away in the end is crazy, right? It's, it's hugely wasteful. So being able to get really accurate, you know, 3D CAD representations, a nice way to review them, you know, giving a buyer confidence that they're going to get, their order is going to look like what they saw. It's, it really saves a ton of time and a ton of waste, you know, from the system. It's, it's quite exciting. So now, so for most of the, so most of your career at Foundry, you actually were working with Nuke and so dealing with compositing. So when you started, you yes. didn't know anything about compositing, but I guess quickly you had to learn everything about compositing, right? Like, so how did that yes. go? <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Is it, well, I say I was super lucky to um, join Foundry and to start working on Nuke from the very beginning because it's an amazing tool, really. And I, um, I don't think I, I, yeah, didn't know what I was getting into at the start, but it's really, really incredible. And yeah, so I joined Foundry in 2015, March of 2015. My um, first release was Nuke 9.0 V5, which was when we launched Nuke Non-Commercial. So that was super exciting to come into. Yeah, um, and also fixed all the bugs that had been in 9.0. We fixed up some of them. I think we did. A few more releases to fix the majority. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I can say I came after. You know, when we were on the downward slope of uh, of fixing bugs. Um, but yeah, so I just definitely had to learn a lot. But I found, um, you know, everyone at Foundry was was really helpful, and there were lots of people that would answer all of my questions. Um, but also, just in the industry, everyone I talked to was really yeah, happy to, to teach me things and explain what they're doing and how they're working. And I never felt like I couldn't ask a question about how something worked or why, why things are done one way, not another. And everyone was all, you know, very welcoming and supportive in that way. Vifix is very small and very close knit. Um, and I think people don't realize like, cause it's, it's big and you see all these credits, but then you realize like very quickly, you kind of know it. Like everyone, or you, if you don't know everyone directly, you know someone that knows them, right? At mm. some point, like you're like Kevin Bacon to everyone in, yeah. in the industry. In a very <laughs> that's very true. Short like the the degrees of separation are very very small, right? Um, and that's actually we met, didn't we, in 2015? You were in the first client facing meeting I did at Foundry when I first got. <laughs> that was the first one. It was the first one, and. I don't remember much about it, except that I think we were talking about probably Aces and Open Color I.O. because because that was right after like, Aces uh, 
came out, right? Just like six months before, and we were working on supporting it. Duke Indie, which I think took longer than that, and it was kind of the conversation and and some of the other people there, me, but some of the other people there were quite passionate about of because obviously at one point you want to take features out because you want to sell it at a lower price point, and at the other point you know we want everything and it's too expensive. So everyone is doing something, um, and obviously that is a big part of I guess your role, right? Everyone wants everything. Um, and you've got to make decisions about what they get and what they don't and where to put your resources. I mean, you know, when that could be features, that could be price points, that could be different versions. Um, and I think Nuke is interesting because, I mean, I guess your user base is much bigger than your client base in a sense that mm. most of your client, I guess your clients are mostly VFX houses. And with Nuke Indie, you're starting to get, I guess, more artists buying Nuke themselves, but the majority of your Nuke users have never bought a Nuke license. I mean, I would probably argue that yes, yes, 90% yes. of Nuke users have never bought a Nuke license in their lives. Um, so, I, and how, what, does that, what does that mean? Because obviously you're getting feedback from users, but they're not the people ultimately making the decision whether or not to buy a license. Yeah. Um, how does that affect the way you respond to your clients, I guess? Yes, that's that's right. You were in the fo the first focus group we did on Nuke Indie, and then we actually released a Nuke Indie five years later. So <laughs> there you go. Sometimes it takes a while, um, but it's yeah. No, I think one of the fun things about working on Nuke actually as a product manager is the diversity of the user base, and because it's not just um, you know artists versus pipelines versus management right who's actually gonna pay for things but also when you think about the different kinds of work and the different kinds of jobs that people do in nuke right whether you're working on a big you know dune really right? <laughs> a massive vfx but a real vfx um feature or um you know animation or commercial you may have different requirements right so there's a lot you know a, a lot to consider about um yeah, balancing everyone's everyone's needs together. And, yeah. So did you actually have to learn to use Nuke? Um, I was curious if they actually sat you in front of one and had you drive it for a bit, or...? Um, well, so... I could say I'm, I'm definitely not a compositor. If you said, no. like, comp the shot, um, I would I would fail quite quickly. But I, you know, over, over the years, you have... Um, learned to use Nuke quite a bit. It wasn't um, a requirement in my, like the first set of work I was doing, but it's something I picked up anyway, just doing tutorials here and there. And of course, um, you know, my strategy was when there's a new feature or a new area that we're adding, you know, just go play with it and, and see how it works. And over time kind of built up that, I think I could get through the basics now, but I'm definitely not an expert. Luckily, there are many other people at Foundry who know much more about Nuke and, and how it's used than I do, who bring that you know into the team. So, what what is your team? So what is so let I uh, let's start I guess with your Nuke team because that's the long, and then we'll talk about your new role I guess and, and move into that. So, um, what is the Nuke team? So you're you're leading it as the not called product manager. You're called you were called something else. Though. Oh yes, yeah, the director of product, right? That one. Which is a like 
you know, higher up product manager, but yeah, product management, yeah. Um, and then so you've got people, so under you've got like one, um, mm -hmm. and he's specifically Nuke Studio. And then I guess you've got someone more for Nuke, NukeX? Yeah, so we, let's see, so there are quite a few of us, right? So we have, um, yeah, like I was looking after all of Nuke, so direction for all of Nuke and Flix as well, actually. Um, it's another founder product all about storyboarding and yeah so I was looking after all of those and then we had um, yeah one who was really leading the direction for Nuke Studio and Hero but also working with Flix and of course doing quite a lot on the Nuke side as well he's got a lot of great experience and um, well in the industry and at Foundry so he does quite a lot of things then we have um, David Nolan who's working on the Nuke and NukeX side specializing in performance and we have um, really a whole team of other product managers that work with them so it's it's quite a big team now I think we're almost 10 of us looking across everything um, but when you think about the work that product management does um, I guess it's just probably interesting because a lot of your audience probably doesn't know what product management does other than their people that come and present roadmaps at your studio <laughs> of what's coming next so really um, the way I see the role of product is matching, you know, bringing in the voice of the customer and matching that to the business goals and working out the strategy for the product, but then taking that strategy and really being the one that's working towards delivery. So of course that's working really closely in partnership with engineering, the people that are actually writing code and doing, you know, the development of the software, but really with, you know, any team that's involved with delivery. So, you know, DevOps and business systems and sales and marketing and customer support and, and everything else, right? Whatever you need that voice of the customer and, and that sense of priority. So in that sense, it's quite broad and quite exciting, you know, the, the role. And so. Yeah. Cause you've got, you've got, so on your team, you've got engineers, artists, Product managers who are in a similar, I guess they're, they're just, uh, you would say, the same role at a lower level than yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and would you say it's a good balance between those those spheres of knowledge? Or Yeah, well, I think, so let's see. So on the product management team, um, it's a real mix of people that have come into the business from being compositors. So coming from the industry, and actually I'm hiring a new person right now. So this sounds like something to want to do, definitely come and apply. Um, but yeah, so we do have some people that came from being compositors who are Nuke specialists. Like they know a lot about Nuke and how it's used and they're really motivated to improve Nuke for all the artists they know right in the industry and trying to make it better for them. Um, we also have quite a few people that move from other roles in the company. So that have come from customer support or QA or product design into product management to have more of a kind of impact on our priorities and, and the kind of work that we're doing. So it's, yeah, and then a couple people like me, right, who come from product management, not necessarily in VFX to add the kind of product strategy expertise. So it's quite varied um, and we are, compared to the engineering team is we're actually quite a small team. There's many, many more engineers to product managers, but um, you know, we are the ones that are trying to set the strategy and 
and manage the priorities across all the work that we're doing. So I guess anyone that uses new, you get those questionnaires that say like what you know which feature on a value of one to five would you like this this and when you get that data what do you what do you what do you do with it like do you because at some point you're gonna actually I guess decide to make something or not make something so are there things that you think you thought you would want to make and then no one really wanted them and you just didn't bother and you and you put all your energies into something else? And are there things that maybe you never thought people would want and then they're like, we really want this and this is this is our priority more than anything else, more than the thing you thought was cool? Yeah, definitely. So I guess to talk to answer your question about the survey first. <laughs> so the survey, I have to say thank you to everyone that fills in the survey because it's actually a really important data point for us. And I know some of the questions seem a bit like, you wonder why are we asking? Or it's really long, right? Because it's really what we use the survey for is to val validate a lot of like information that we've heard, you know, anecdotally in customer meetings and maybe our own sense of what's interesting. And using the survey can go to many more people than we could ever meet with. And so it gives us some nice data points on what's important to people that we haven't gotten the chance to speak to. So thank you again, everyone. And my favorite part of the survey is actually the comments. The, uh, the people write in is always, always, I think the most telling, because usually it's the thing we've forgotten to think about or that we thought wasn't important. And it's like, oh, actually it's, no, this is the Linux distribution or this is, you know, the feature I really need. Just fix this bug, it's this bug, go fix it. Yeah, those kind of things. Can you give a specific example of that where something you've just you've you've done because it came up in the comments and you weren't even thinking of it before? Oh, that's a good question. I have to really like think back. Hmm. Probably the one one of the ones that came up from the survey that um, we ended up taking on was merging the spherical transform nodes from Nuke and Cara VR. That one came up many, many times of the, you know, why are they two different ones? Can't you make it the same? Put them together where really under the hood, they're doing totally different things. So they worked in very different ways. Um, but we got there and um, I think it was in Nuke 12 where we um, combine them together, 12 or 12.1, after Caravier merged into NukeX. Yeah. It's also quite a big decision, right? Because at one point you were selling Cara as quite a, you know, quite a price, yeah. um, quite a high-priced product. And then you're like, okay, now it's just part of Nuke. So how do you, you know, what makes you do that kind of thing? Like, what's the logic to that? Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different reasons that we might do that. There's a bit of, you know, demand and kind of market life cycle. And for something like Car VR is a good example where, you know, we released it in 2016. It was right in the heyday of 360 video. Going to be the future, right? 360 video, we're all going to wear headsets all the time and this is it. Um, and it did really great. Like it was one of the first bespoke, you know, 360 video tool sets that was out on the market. So it's, you know, was used quite a lot and quite popular. But then as the appetite for 360 video started to decline, you know, once we got over the VR hype hype cycle <laughs> and, you know, everything, just less interest in, in VR and 360 video, 
you know, the value of that tool set really diminished, but um, we knew there's a lot of really valuable things in there for traditional compositing, you know, for cleanup and color matching and creating lat longs and reviewing them for other kinds of location-based experiences or even preparing backgrounds for virtual production. And so, you know, we, we saw there wasn't, we didn't want to let the tool set die, even though it's kind of niche had really gone away. And so you know, we decided to move it into NuGex to, you know, keep those workflows alive and, and make it more accessible really to, to anyone that could use those tools. And because uh, I think I, I just was just yesterday talking to um, Joel from the Cave Academy and he mentioned that I think ClearAngle, they've got a system of using, you can, in a way that I've never heard of Nuke being used, of having like 12 reds on a, and doing 360s live and sort of live, doing a live composite with Nuke, which must be on a ridiculous machine, I don't know, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, so there, there are people that do stuff with Nuke that is really like unusual, there are obviously the customers mm. that do the kind of bread and butter work, but every now and again there's someone using Nuke in a way that maybe no one else is using it and I, I think that's really quite interesting do you oh, get yeah. those stories Absolutely. is there anyone any other things you remember where someone is you're like you can do that with nuke like you do that <laughs> oh yeah yeah oh there's a bunch of those um well i think there, there's definitely a lot of uses for nuke in in architecture and architecture visualization that you wouldn't expect which is quite cool um that comes from nuke's ability to handle really high resolutions and to export stills and video at the same time so you can save a lot of effort um because when i worked at mccann like the print guys would come down they obviously were all photoshop users and then they'd see what we could do with nuke and they'd get like they were like but this is really amazing <laughs> they were, what we were doing was you know we had a big cg render and it was it was odd because and then they they could have even the stuff they could do in photoshop they just came down just to see how we would do it and they would just kind of make us like change you know change the passes and things it's like i could give you the passes no 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 <laughs> just like <laughs> just just do it here <laughs> like, just like what how do these what are these what is all this spaghetti stuff like what's going on yeah so, so that the another thing that i think is really cool i've seen in a couple different forms is car configurators so yeah, <laughs> like there, there are a couple of people out there where like, I can't say who they are, but they will do things like using all deep, so render all the different components to make a model of a car and then have some complex switching system in their nuke scripts to put them together in different formats. So to say like, give me, you know, the version with the sport mirrors and the chrome and the no chrome and, um, yeah, to, to basically configurate different cars as part of a design process. Yeah, it makes sense because people use them in car commercials all the time and and they do exactly that. I mean, I have a friend that did exactly that for a long time. So, you know, if you do it in car commercial, you can just do it if you're buying a car, yes. I mean, yeah, yeah exactly. Selling, render, if you're selling enough cars, once. it's worth a nuke license, you know. Yeah, that's it. Render it once and just tweak it and nuke automatically, you know, without, you know. Not with a compositor, but yeah, just through procedurally. It's really cool. The car sitting in the garage, in the lot, it, that's not selling is not, is a lot of money, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and visualizing all the options too, right? When you think about all the different possible combos you can get on a car these days, it's it's a lot, right, of options. So the more you can, can swap them out quickly, 
to show someone what it would look like. It's valuable. And I guess car, car is an extreme example, but there are lots of things like that, like the camera tracker. So for smaller companies where I've worked, you know, the camera tracker is so useful. And then on the other hand, for the bigger companies that have a match move department and they're give, being given cameras, you almost never touch it. And it, it's a sort of like, it's not a, not a useful feature at all. And so you've got these customers who, for one of them, a, a, a feature is, you know, like a core part of like, that's, that's what they want. And you can, they're like, why are you not updating this? And another company just doesn't care. And they're like, you know, demanding other things. So, I mean, I guess it comes down to who's buying the most new glasses. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, I think it's a balance, right? And luckily, you know, because, you know, they're, you know, you're right. Nuka's used by, well, all the big studios and by VFX studios of all sizes. But I think, you know, there are the big ones out there, you know, the top 10, top 20. But there's, I think, when you think in your own experience, right, all the small VFX studios around London, around Europe, right, Asia, there's so many companies of different sizes that, that use Nuke for different things. It's it's not only the big companies that we need to, to keep using Nuke. So it, it's always a balance of, you know, understanding, you know, what, what's really important for artists, right? The user experience, this is the one thing like, you know, refreshing the UI or, or adding something that's just an user experience improvement. Like in, in the next release in Nuke 13.1, we're releasing Shake to Disconnect. So you can shake your notes, disconnect them like Shake. Which, <laughs> like which, Shake, yeah, which like was shake the first composite I, I learned. Um, uh, it's classic, yeah. It didn't have undo, which was, so like literally <laughs> the, the first, to first sell Nuke, the, the, like literally, I remember the first, I think Tal Niran was doing this demo for, for Nuke and he, he just like, like, and look, control Z. Control and that was a feature that people were excited by. Like, you know, it was ridiculous. So we'd been working for years on big things with this product that couldn't do an undo. So, but one of the thing about, I guess, high-end software is that at, you know, when it, it used to be really clunky, all of it was like, it was insanely bad as a UI compared to consumer products and it was almost like a point of pride that you know it's hard to use and, and you're like well yeah but I, I get that we, sometimes we're doing hard things but why are the easy things hard to do <laughs> in this software so I think that that's something that's changing right that it's becoming more of a demand to make the software accessible uh, and that's no longer a dumbing it down oh why are you doing this mm -hmm. it's yeah, I think that's very true. And I think user experience is that, especially in visual effects and like media, entertainment, software, user experience is the next, well, one of the next big innovations. Because you see a lot, you know, other software and applications and web-based tools that are now so simple, easy to use, really straightforward kind of usage patterns where, um, you know, still professional software, like you said, is a, it is a bit slower, right? And some of that, you know, is because it is hard to use. And like in Nuke, right, one of the the kind of key aspects of Nuke, which makes it great, is the ability, you know, to tweak as much as you want, right? And having everything available and all that control, right? Which does make the UI more complex, right? Because we're asking, you know, you as the artist to manipulate and make more decisions and we're not hiding from you what Nuke is doing. So, yeah. Any VFX artists will get frustrated with something something else, but they're like, but 
what is it doing? Like, it, that looks great, but now I want to change it. What is it actually doing to me? Like, to my images? Like, where? <laughs> it's just a black box, and, and it, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so there's this, this kind of tension, right, between the make it easy, make it simple to use, simple to understand, and um, still give me all the control and expose everything to me and let me make whatever tweaks I want to. And from a design perspective, I think it's quite an interesting challenge, right? To say, how do you have a modern, clean UI, modern interactions without giving away all that visibility of what's happening? And yeah, I think it's quite exciting time actually for, for design and professional tools in terms of improving the user experience. Do you um, do you look at your do you look at your rubbish? Do you have copies of like you know Flame and Fusion and After Effects in the office that you kind of go oh let's you know why don't we do that or you know <laughs> yeah well of course right um, from you know like our product design team they do take a lot of inspiration from you know, looking at other tools seeing how things work um, looking at well, products in other industries right to get ideas as well so. Of course, you know, we're do doing that kind of research. And I mean, actually, I think something from that more than you're know, looking at experience, like things to copy, it's more thinking about where we can make things consistent. You know, even within Founders' own products, right? We're really trying to make an effort where, you know, if we're all going to support the same formats or um, use the same kind of color tools to think about how we can make them more consistent because that is something that helps ease of learning, right, without adding difficulty, right? If, you know, a color picker looks the same everywhere, you don't need to relearn how to use it. Or, you know, if your 3D hotkeys are the same as they are in Nuke and Maya, for example, that's one less thing that you need to learn or to keep in your brain when you're moving between applications. Because a lot of, a lot of I mean, obviously there are compositors working in Nuke all day, but of course, you have a lot of Nuke users who are, you know, Houdini artists or Maya artists who use Nuke at least part of the day. Mm -hmm. um, so that's an important thing. And another thing I was going to, so we talk about rival software, but there are lots of softwares like Maya and Houdini which aren't mm -hmm. rivals to Nuke. They might be rivals to some of your other product lines, but it's pretty much guaranteed that almost every, every Houdini user also uses Nuke. Every Maya user will, well, every lighter will use Nuke at some point. So um, you've got this this element of um, products that are, I guess, competitors to some of your perhaps some of your other line, but at the same time you want Nuke to to play well with them, right? You don't want to, you know, you don't want to make it difficult for Houdini users to use Nuke because that would that would be yeah, a big disaster. Hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's. Um yeah, that's a good point to call out, right? And it is, well, I, I do think we're in an exciting time for the industry in terms of interoperability and some of that's being led by standards, right? And the Academy Software Foundation and development of more of those consistent ways to understand data and transform it and communicate those changes across applications. Um, but also, you know, with the way that you know, hardware is advanced, moving more to the cloud and making more hardware available, um, advancements in rendering and, you know, GPU and real-time rendering coming in more and more. Um, I think we have a lot of building blocks, right, for less linear pipelines. So being able to 
I guess <laughs> such a phrase like the nonlinear pipelines, but you know, th there's I think a real drive around or a real desire in the industry to improve collaboration between multiple departments, multiple artists, but also to have faster creative iterations, which yeah. that's something that Comp can go back into 3D quicker and and do the do the sort of round trip, you know, without restarting an entire cycle. Is it is that what you're exactly or the idea of let's see you know if you're gonna do like virtual um virtual production or even just um you know, just have any kind of virtual art department where you're planning out you know your scenes your shots your sequences in advance and you might be using things like you know mari and katana and nuke to help you do that in a kind of quick preview way um let me try to tell this story again from the end. So if you know, like it, at the end, right, everything is going to come into Nuke, right, for a comp. And of course, like when it comes to interop already from Nuke, we have to think about all the different inputs that you're going to bring in, whether it's camera plates, EXRs, Alembics, USD scenes now, all that has to come into Nuke. And um, we are seeing Nuke show up much earlier in the process where it's being used as that reference point from the beginning of the how do we plan how we want this to end up in the end, see it in the context of Nuke and then go off work in all these other applications, render, and then you're going to come back to Nuke in the end. And I think that creates a lot of really interesting opportunities for interop. And you know, obviously it's also the promise of USD, right? That you'll be able to go backwards and forwards and maintain um, a sense of, you know, versioning and control and non-destructive changes within a scene, thanks to that. And yeah, because the dream would be yeah. like, if they change anim, it doesn't go back to lighting. Like if, you, mm -hmm. if you're happy with the lighting, then you're happy with the comp and they just want to adjust yes. the animation. The dream would be that they can do that adjustment and then you just like, press update and it updates the anim cache and it all kind of pipes through but it doesn't do that at the moment but <laughs> yes. that would be cool it's, it's a big dream this one isn't it it's a big dream but it's um you know quite exciting even if we can do it in a small way like between like in that painting right if you're going between you know a 3d application like you know maya you're using mari you're using nuke or using photoshop and nuke you know if you're able to have this more kind of direct data interchange between like go set up your projections in the comp save them in a usd get that back and automate more of that that's i think quite exciting from an efficiency standpoint absolutely um and then i guess there's also um there's a couple of other things i wanted to jump to so the last thing i guess that specifically nuke is probably the most um interesting new thing is the copycat because that's that's quite yes. different i mean that's almost that's almost like a product in itself. Um, so mm -hmm. I think, um, how was that as in terms of development? How, what was, how is, what's the response been uh, that you've seen yeah. from, from that product? So well, the response has been really, really positive and it's really driven adoption of Nuke 13 <laughs> into productions where yeah, Nuke 13 is the move to Python 3. So it's always gonna be a hard one for studios to move to. But copycat has really gotten yeah a, a lot of use already <laughs> back from when it was in beta people were using it to to process images which is really exciting and you know i think copycat 
it is really great. It's one of the features that we've made since I've been at Foundry that I'm most proud of in Nuke because it it's a case where we're taking this powerful kind of nascent technology and machine learning that has so much potential to transform you know, visual effects and image processing and just our lives in general. Um, but it but it's also hard, right? It's a hard one to apply because you know the kind of quality and scale that you work in VFX is different than the kind of broad machine learning models that might exist out there. You know that you know the way Google may process your photos, right? In Google Photos, is a bit different. Um, but with Copycat, you know we've been able to take you know the kind of bones of machine learning where it says, I give you. You know, you give it some reference of, I want to turn this image into this image, and then it goes away and trains how to do that and, and can apply that. Um, but it does it, it does it in a kind of artist-focused context, right? We put it inside Nuke, which makes it available to the artists to make their models, to tweak them, to really develop these tools themselves. It's not a machine learning tool that replaces the artist, and I think it's very much in line with you know, the, what we say was always the goal with Nuke, right, which is about giving the artists technical and creative control by, you know, putting the technology into their hands, right, and not hiding it away. And, but machine learning has a, a sort of inherent, it hides things. I mean, like, one, I mean, I've seen, like, I know artists who's using it a lot, and um, what's interesting is, you know, what you can do is mostly you give it another example, right? So you can do a lot of simple shots, like where you're doing something to people's eyes or screen replacements, you can kind of just give it an example and, and then let it do other ones. And then, but then if you want to tweak them, rather than how you might in a traditional new way of adjusting keyframes or adjusting a slider somewhere, what you'll actually do is you'll do another, another frame or, an, or even another shot and then feed that into the model and, and then run it again and see and sort of improve it in that way so it's it's almost more like teaching a junior artist than <laughs> than <laughs> yes yeah it is right i mean it you're right it is a bit black boxy right like the models work but you don't necessarily know what they do and you can't control what they're doing right there you know it's it's a training a junior artist that has a robot brain <laughs> instead of a human one you can't say make it feel a bit more fun they're like no nah. I don't get it. So, <laughs> um, it, it you do have to. It, it is a paradigm shift, right, in terms of the way you think about solving problems. Because yeah, you're right. In Nuke, you you know, you add all all the nodes, right? You set all the operations you want to do, and you refine the parameters. And in this case, it's it's a bit of the opposite. Like you're working from the output, and you need to decide what are the other reference frames I need to give it. Am I giving it too much information? Um, am I telling it to look at the wrong part of the image? It's a bit of a different um, different paradigm. But you do think of a lot of cases. I mean, when we were on Good Omens uh, a few years ago, I mean, it was two years ago now, but the, you know, David Tennant's um, contact lenses kept rotating while mm. he was just acting. And so, you know, it was pretty easy fix in you to track it, stabilize it, you know, turn it around and, and match move it again. But um, of course, it was just a lot of them because it was every single shot where he's wearing these contact lenses, which is pretty much every shot in the in the show. So, you do think, you know, yeah, I would we could have done that in 
and you would just, I guess, do examples in different lighting conditions and, and do that. But are you also training models at Foundry that there are things that I guess everyone's doing, like, you know, um, yeah, up-resing, degraining, regraining. Like, there's, there's certain like lens distortion is that boring things that everyone has to do in every shot and you think you know that's what you kind of want the machine to do all the boring stuff like in a way <laughs> yeah definitely, cool stuff. definitely um so i mean yes so in nuke 13 there are two tools that we shipped that we trained at foundry one is the deblur node which is pretty cool i mean it's something that you couldn't do before machine learning, right? To, to remove motion blur from video. And up-res is the other one. So upscales the node that we released, which um, does some quite quite nice upscaling as an alternative to the TVI scale node. Um, but the challenges we found is that, well, these things all really require the GPU and a quite powerful GPU. Um, so it's not always accessible to really work performantly in a lot of you know, hardware that VFX artists are using. Um, and the other big challenge is the access to the data because, you know, Foundry, we're not making movies, right? Like we're not um, generating tons of high quality, you know, production data that we can use for training. And we, um, you know, while, while we may have done tests on like, you know, client footage or in partnership with different companies, you know, we only want to release tools that there's no question about ownership of that data and, um, you know, where it's come from. Are you looking at ways to anonymize data so you can, you know, for example, it could be the data was generated on an NDA movie, a non-disclosure agreement movie, but you're kind of going, this data is just like how you, how you remove blinks when someone fires a gun, for example. And, and it's not going to be anything that is specific to that movie. Of course, if it was like how to, you know, how to make Thor's hammer have lightning on it, then that would, that would be inherently, you would, wouldn't want a tool that just does that because that would that would inherently be like a Marvel thing. But if, it, but there are a lot of things that we just do all the time, like like wire removals, screen replacements, blah blah blah, that are just you know they're really basic and we do thousands of them. Yeah, I think it's still it's a really tricky one, and hopefully it's something that will be easier to enable in the future as the industry gets more used to machine learning and what it can do and, and how it's used. Um, but it's, it's a real tricky one because who owns the data? Like one, a great example is roto shapes, right? So if you, everyone's rotoing, rotoing people, people are the same, whether it's Scarlett Johansson or I don't know, someone else, George Clooney, right? They're still generally people. So you think, you know, the roto shape is roto shape. But, um, you know, in the end, like the runner shape is outlining an object and an image who actually owns the image, who owns the shape of that object. It, it starts to get more complicated from an IP standpoint. Um, but hopefully one in the future that we can get to that place where um, studios and really the people that own the IP are comfortable with anonymizing the data. Um, but along those lines, we do have something that's quite I think quite exciting coming in the next release of Nuke, which is expanding the inference node, which is the sister node to Copycat, the one you use to apply the models within a Nuke script. That one, we're opening up um, 
the ability to use models that were trained outside of Nuke. So you can use open source PyTorch models that are generated in the community inside Nuke. Um, that also, you know, I, I can also see potential in the future where if you imagine on like Nukepedia, you know, people can train their copycat models. You know, if it's their data, they're comfortable sharing it, they can contribute that back to the community. Someone can pick it up, add more to it. Like you said, you have screen replacements. Who be like, this is my model I made for a screen replacement in the shot. Someone could say, great, I took that. I added a few more frames for my show to it. And now it's an even better model for that and and so forth. Like we can get a community of these things which are really just more Nuke tools, right? You can apply to different images and different Nuke scripts. No, but I think because you can, you can already share a cat site. Is it a dog? Cat, yes, dot cat. I know you're extra clever with this one. <laughs> it's a good name. It's a, it's a really good name as well. Like I think that was, that was quite well done, whoever came up with it. Oh, that was our, our research team. It's Ben Kent. He gets the credit for that. Well done. Um, <laughs> uh, so now you are now expanding to all the products. So having like become like the you know the the lord of the mistress of new, you are now like all the products of Foundry. <laughs> and yes. what does this mean? Like what what are, what have you had to learn? What what are you? What's the most exciting? What's the most exciting tool that isn't new that you're working on? Oh, you're gonna make me choose between them. All my other I'm product teams are going to be <laughs> going to be jealous. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I'm really quite excited about all of them. They all have their kind of unique unique strengths and their unique challenges. I think, well, we already talked about Colorway. I think that has a lot of potential. I think Flix has a lot of, you know, untapped potential that we can develop for um, storyboarding and, and not just storyboarding, but um, previs and you know, other, other kind of review applications in the future. Um, but of course, like Katana and Mari are also really exciting. You know, they're used in a lot of pipelines with Nuke. Actually, you know, it's 100% overlap between those tools and Nuke. Yeah. So I think it's quite exciting to be thinking across them, especially at a time where we are looking at how we can implement, you know, within Foundry and you know, across the industry workflows around USD, better interop, um, the user experience piece you already mentioned. Like there's a lot of, of cross products potential we've not taken advantage of yet. And yeah, go ahead. Because, so, I mean, I guess if you take example of Adobe, one thing that Adobe does do well is that I don't actually use any Adobe products. I <laughs> I'm not saying that because you're here. I just, I just have like lost like contact with them. But one thing yeah. they do do very well is they have their softwares are similar enough that even if they're quite different, like Illustrator and After Effects, that if you know one of them, you can very quickly learn another. And are you are you doing a similar thing with Nuke and, for example, Katana or Mari to go, like, you know, if you're a Nuke user, you should be able to learn Katana, you know, in half the time of someone that's never used Nuke, or are you sort of thinking along those lines as well? Is that a part of your strategy? Yeah. Or? Well, I think, I mean, because our tools are so, yeah, you know, they are specific and niche and designed for a specific job, I think it's unlikely we'll ever get to a point that's, so much like the Adobe Suite, where you can really move between them. I think it's 
you know, I think that's unlikely because, you know, does it always make sense for a lighter to think the same way a compositor does and, and vice versa? But I do think we can have, you know, that we talked about ease of data exchange between them, consistency in the things that should be consistent and that um, kind of trust, right, that the work you do in Katana is going to carry over perfectly to Nuke, but not in a way that requires us to make, you know, bespoke formats or or locks that, that we couldn't build with other, you know, other software. So always built around open standards. Um, yeah, I think our, our approach is likely to be around that, like the how we implement standards consistently and how we can have more experience sharing when it makes sense. And are there, are there tools, I mean, for example, um, there are tools that um, like Mocha and Silhouette that are not rivals at all, that just, but they complement something within a particular feature of a new so for example Mocha, you know you can export new corona shapes and trackers and um spline warps and, and things like that so do you have what, what is your relationship to those companies that produce software that or or things like the keen tools which is you know getting used a lot and this is a you know brilliant plugin and it, it's like something i didn't even think you could do in new but so when how do you how do you work with those kind of companies yeah, so, well, those guys, those particular ones, the so Boris Effects and Keen Tools, we do work with them quite a lot um, because, of course, we want them to maintain compatibility with Nuke. And really, for me, like, I think it's a great thing, right? If someone is building tools that add to the tool set of Nuke that we can never build, like everything, you know, that they've built. So it's really great to have that available in Nuke. It's a huge one for us. And so, yeah, we do a lot of collaboration with them on making sure that our tools are going to stay up to date, they're going to work well together. If there's any blocks, you know, to what they're doing that, you know, we can resolve a nuke for them. We're always talking to developers about those kind of things. Um, so, yeah, and also to get feedback from, you know, to hear their feedback, right, from the requests they get about Nuke or how their tools are being used because, you know, our our customer base may be the same, but, you know, the tools are used in, in different ways in different segments, you know, of the market. And, you know, a plug-in manufacturer, they may have more insight from um, smaller studios or in cases like Vortex who make Eddy. It's a specific use case, right, for simulations in Nuke. And so, you know, the customers that use those, like when we talk to them, it may be about Nuke proper and not about this highly scaled 3D aspect of Nuke. And yeah, so we get a lot of insight from them and share a lot of feedback, you know, in both directions. Oh, that's really cool. And uh, to a certain extent, I'm in most, like most of your customers are building tools, right? Because I mean, if you think of Nuke and I guess Katana as well, I'm not a Katana user, so I'm kind of guessing here, but you, almost no one uses it out of the box as as you you know, you know the way you down when you download you can you install it that's not how it is in, you know, in any facility <laughs> yes <laughs> there's, there's all sorts of tools that are built around it and obviously the, the scripting um connection with python um and you obviously have a blink script and there's still tcl somewhere but you know those capabilities are quite extensive and mm -hmm. they are used a lot and so at some point when you're looking at bugs and new features, I mean, sometimes I guess some companies already have those features because they've made them themselves, but 
do you um wh- what's your relationship with that kind of aspect of your yeah. software being extended by the user base yeah no definitely it's it's very true right um nuke is highly customized and extended and integrated in a lot of different ways and um yeah it, it's a strength right in in a lot of ways because people are taking advantage right of the the python api and the c plus plus sdk and all those things to extend what you can do nuke also great right because you're getting more value than you know foundry could build for you um but it does pose some challenges around really the kind of frequency of updates we do or how how many big like api changing updates we make because of course you know every time we upgrade core libraries or make a big change to the sdk it means you need to change your tools and update them so So we did python 3 yeah so like python 3 um qt5 or even things like in nuke was it 11.2 we updated the deep api to be more performant but if you had your own deep tools which a lot of studios do you needed to move them to this new api and it may not be a lot of work but it's another development project they have to plan for and so it's one more bit that we need to consider in our consider in our kind of roadmaps and our planning is when do we make these changes how do we you know be confident in them and we do, and of course, we talk to our customers a lot, especially the larger studios that have a lot of these customizations around just that. Like the, you know, if we make a change and it means you're going to have to update all your 3D tools, when is a good time for that? What are the benefits you need to see to make that worthwhile? Are you willing to do it? <laughs> that kind of thing. And I mean, sometimes it means that we can't move as fast as you know, smaller studios or those that don't adhere to adhere to the VFX reference platform would like us to, because we kind of need to move the whole industry at once <laughs> to, to different standards. And um, I guess the flip side of that, the smaller studios, they when they don't have pipeline developers, do they, I mean, they, do, is there a demand for like a pipeline in a box to just like, I, I just want to download and you can install it and, you know, have it, you know, do auto writes and, and a lot of these things that I'm used to. I mean, even like that, some of the things that you I've seen you've added to Nuke, like the fact that a rotor shape defaults to alpha, that a frame hold defaults to the frame that you're on, which everyone scripted themselves because nobody mm-hmm. used them the way they, the software managed them. But is there more of a demand for to just like, I, I don't want to write my own, I bought a software, I don't want to write my own software to, to use your software. I mean, from, especially Nuke Indie users perhaps, or... Yes, well, definitely. Um, and I think actually in, in general, right, there is, there's still, you know, this appetite for integrations, right, and studios building integrations, but less, less so for building lots of custom tools on top of things. Everyone wants to kind of focus their R&D efforts in different places, not building a lot of plugins anymore. And so there is more of this demand for more plugins and for more of those um, kind of quality of life things you mentioned, like the updates to the frame hold, um, to be just in the product. And yeah, that's part of the reason why we have a bit of an effort around this at the moment to make these little, little bit impactful changes. So a little relatively small, still take work to make, of course, relatively small, but impactful updates. Um, we have, you know, 
not as much um, demand for the build the pipeline for me aspect, but I think you know right now there's the integrations with um, shop management tools like ShopGrid and FTrack have become so good that if you can use those, if you have something like that in your pipeline and you attach Nuke to it, it it can make it quite easy to get up and running and still have a level of sophistication and you know, management of, of what's happening on a project. Oh, that's really cool. So I guess um, as we're sort of coming towards the end, I've got two questions for you, but this is one of them. One, what do you think are the most exciting things you see coming in the next few years within VFX and the product lines that you're running? Yeah, well, definitely USD workflows. I think that's really exciting. And, you know, on the, the 3D side, right, it's already here, right, between Maya and Houdini and, and Katana, right? They've been working with USD for a long time. But now that's coming into, you know, compositing and, and Nuke and, and tools in other areas in the pipeline. And I think that's quite exciting towards that, um, you know, promise of USD that we talked about, about enabling collaboration and this kind of non-linear way of working where you can go back and forth. I think that's really exciting. I think, um, well, definitely real time in terms of accelerating, you know, ways of working and adding more collaboration. I think there's a lot of potential from that just in the industry overall is really exciting. So, and again, machine learning, like we already talked about, I think we're just scratching the surface about what we can do with machine learning and do it in a way that accelerates and enables artists rather than, you know, the the auto comp AI, <laughs> because no one really wants that, right? We certainly don't want that. So, I think it's it's quite exciting times though for for all those tools, and what that means for artists or in teams in terms of collaboration and new ways of working that may have not not existed before. So. Uh, I would also like to finish with, if someone wants to move into product management, whether they're coming from outside the industry like yourself, or whether they're coming from an artist role and they want to move into a uh, more product-involved role, what are your, your tips and sort of do's and don'ts regarding that? Yeah, so I would say for anyone that's in VFX or animation, I'd say, you know, to... When you think about your career and you think about the opportunities to think broadly because when i think about a lot of the team at foundry that came from production you know they get to come work in software they have honestly quite a nice work life quality of life balance <laughs> um, but also then get to have a real impact across the whole industry right you're not working in one studio on one show you're really touching them all and I think that's that's quite exciting. So really if you know you're someone that has knowledge of of Nuke, Maya, Katana, Mari, anything, you um, have a lot more career options, right, than than working only in a studio. And yeah, definitely whether that's product management or other other things, um, there's a lot a lot of job opportunities out there in the kind of technology space. So consider those. <laughs> Um, and then for product management in, in particular, really, um, you know, the main, the main skills and, and things to build is thinking strategically. So kind of the theme of what we talked about, the questions that you asked about, how do you balance priorities from different studios? 
How do you manage the timing of, you know, X feature before Y feature? How do you figure out how to price or package products? All of that is, is really comes down to going around, being really good at listening, being really good at connecting the dots and kind of making pragmatic decisions. And I think you can build those skills in so many places, you know, whether that's um, in other jobs <laughs> that you're doing or just in, in your life in general, right? Planning projects or trying to accomplish something, especially if it's creative, you're, you're going to build all those product skills that you can then you know, leverage to move into product management. Brilliant. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your having you uh, coming on the show this evening. And um, I'm sure there'll be lots of questions on the comments and uh, forums, but we'll, we'll be looking forward to keeping in touch with you. Where can people find out more about you and about Foundry in general? Yeah, so Foundry is simple, www.foundry.com. Not the Foundry, just Foundry. <laughs> um, you can find us there. And of course, we're on social media, so Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, as the Foundry team. So yeah, if you follow us on those channels, lots of great updates about the products and what's coming. But whenever we do you know, case studies or talk to artists in, in the industry, all of that gets shared up there. So lots of good places to learn. And of course, I'm on LinkedIn. Anyone can come find me. I love to talk to, to artists or other people in the industry. So definitely reach out. Brilliant. Okay. Thank you very much. Have a good evening. Mm -hmm.